Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in his thoughts and in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I don't know why I'm leaning into this mic. I got one right here. I was have it, I guess, now that we got one like that. But uh, how's everybody doing this morning? Oh, good, good. Well, I my name is uh, Michael Badger. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I'm one of the uh, pastors here at uh, Redeemer Church. Hey, Max. Uh, and uh, I'm so thankful that we can yet again, as Ethan said, come together uh, the second Sunday of Advent to man, just worship the Lord and man as we just sang come and adore Jesus that's that's why we come here every single Sunday it's not it's not to just be able to see one another it's not to really do anything but just to adore Jesus and what a wonderful privilege it is to be able to do that with you guys this morning so I am I'm so excited to be here I hope you guys are too uh, but uh, last week, uh, during the first Sunday of Advent, we looked at the incredible news that was given to Mary by the angel Gabriel, that she, Mary, a lowly peasant girl from the podunk town of Nazareth, would be the one to miraculously conceive and give birth to Jesus the Messiah. Now, after receiving this news, Mary then journeyed to visit her relatives, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were also visited by the angel Gabriel. And uh, we're told that, uh, that she too, that Elizabeth, would, would also bear a son who would be known as John the Baptist. But what I really love are verses 41 and 45. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Luke chapter 1 and first look at verses 41 and, uh, through 45. Unfortunately, we don't have them on the screen. But Luke chapter 1. Because as soon as Mary arrived... At Elizabeth's home. And after they both shared their experiences with the Gabriel or angel, uh, the angel Gabriel, the baby inside of Elizabeth, little John the baby Baptist, leapt in her womb out of joy. Now, many of us cynical people would probably look at that and, and say, you know, I, I'm sure that he was just, just stretching or, or something like that, or, or maybe, you know, Elizabeth was having just a little bit of indigestion or, or, or something along those lines. But, but what we have to remember is the, the crucial fact that we see in Luke chapter 1, verse 14, when we're told about John the Baptist and what this baby would be like. 
Because Gabriel told Zechariah, John's father, that even from the womb, John would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so even, even that, that inside that, uh, that womb, John the Baptist was allowed by the Holy Spirit to somehow sense that he was in the presence of the God-man, in the presence of the Lord. Now, I think that's amazing. I think that's incredible. And this, this really sets up the tempo for the rest of this passage and into the one that we're going to be looking at more closely this morning because it's, it's all about joy and worship. That's what the passage this morning is all about. And after Elizabeth felt her son leap, she shouted with excitement, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And she's talking to Mary. And in awe of the love that God has shown to her, Elizabeth says in verse 43, And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, we, we aren't told whether or not the response from Mary that we're about to kind of dive into is, a, uh, is a, kind of an immediate response to what Mary says, or if it was something that was laid upon her heart after some time of meditating on all that kind of transpired over the last several, several days. Biblical scholars say it could be either one. But honestly, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the exact timing of the passage we're going to be looking at. Because what Luke desires to show us is that the atmosphere of the time that Mary spends with her relatives is a celebratory one. It's a time of celebration. When Mary is with, with Zechariah and Elizabeth, it's a time of, of joyful rejoicing. That's what it is. And so immediately after Elizabeth's excited exclamation, Luke launches straight into what is often called Mary's Magnificat. Magnificat. Her song of praise. And though Mary was a peasant woman of low social standing, she, like all the Jewish people of this region, would have been very familiar with the Old Testament. And so her song of praise was actually very closely kind of modeled after that of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10, when Hannah thought herself to be barren. But the Lord blessed her with a son. And this song of Hannah would have been well known to Mary. So she takes it, and I would submit, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she kind of infuses it with a, a greater meaning. In fact, I think you could say that, that Hannah's song actually prophesied the, the, the song of Mary. That Hannah's song found its, its greatest fulfillment in the song of Mary. And so this morning, we're going to Look at this worshipful song of Mary that, that flowed from her as she anticipated the birth of Jesus. And I want us to see how this song should, man, friends, it should be our song, right? The song that we're about to read should be our song. It should be a song that, that flows from our lips as we anticipate His second coming. But before we dive into this, let us pray for the Holy Spirit to, to really create in us that kind of heart, a rejoicing and worshipful heart as we look at His Word together. So before we go any further, please pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, You are so good. You are so kind. 
And by your grace, we get to be here this morning. We get to open up your word and see what it says. And so, God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit guides our time this morning. And as we have prayed before, there are a million things that are fighting for us to focus on those things rather than what we came here to do, to, to come here and adore your Son. And so, Lord, I pray that you just protect us, Lord, that you shelter our hearts and keep us focused in on the things that you want us to take away from this morning. So, Lord, we love you. God, we need you. And I pray this in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen. Now, this may come to a shock to you, since uh, I'm a pastor, um, but uh, sadly, I must admit that there have been times in the past where I have come to church and, and I've said my hellos and I've taken my seat in the sanctuary or, or worship room, whatever you want to call it, and began to sing the worship songs and yet be a million miles away in my heart and in my mind. So have you ever experienced that? Or am, I, am I alone here? Praise God. Okay. So I was like, oh man. But maybe you had a rough week. Maybe you've actually experienced what I'm talking about this morning. Maybe as we were singing those songs just a second ago, you were thinking about all the plans you have for today, all the plans that you have for this Christmas season, and you couldn't really engage in your heart. Or maybe you just had a rough week, or you had a rough morning getting the kids dressed and actually here. So as you come and as Paul and Ethan began to, to sing and play the piano, you, you, you joined in. But the only part of you that was really engaged in worship were, were maybe just your lips and, and not much more. The words that you were singing weren't really coming from your heart. You were sort of just, you know, just kind of reading the words off the screen. And I've been there. Many times, I'm ashamed to say. And in those moments, I was, I was actually simply paying lip service to God, not actually truly worshiping Him in my heart, you know? And in those moments, we actually start acting like those who Jesus warns us of in Matthew 15, 8, where He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is where? It's far from me. But friends, if there is anything that you can say about Mary in this passage that we're looking at this morning, is that she, in this song of hers, was not merely rendering lip service to God. You cannot say that of Mary here. And this is shown clearly in how she begins in verses 46 and 47, where she is saying, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, the term magnificent actually comes from this first verse here. It is Latin for magnify. And so what Mary is saying in these verses is that her, her whole being, her, her whole being, not, not just her lips, but all of her from the inside out is caught up in this joyful worship of the Lord. Now, there are a couple of things that I want you to notice in these first two verses that we see here. The first is that Mary is using two different words that are synonymous within Scripture. Okay, Many will mistakenly think that the Bible makes this, this distinction, draws this line between the, the soul, spirit, and, and the heart. 
And some people even add a fourth category of the mind. However, I, as I mentioned uh, in a sermon a few months ago, the Bible doesn't make that same kind of distinction. It doesn't draw those same lines. The, the soul, spirit, heart, and mind are all synonyms in Scripture for everything that makes up the, the inward person, who you are inside. And so don't be confused here thinking that Mary is speaking of two different segmented pieces of herself. You could easily replace both of these words with heart and not lose the correct understanding of this text. But now that we got that out of the way, I just want you to take, I just want you to take notice of the heart of Mary in these verses. Just let it, just let it sink in for a second. As Mary is sitting there reflecting on her time with Elizabeth and, and the visit from Gabriel and everything that, that he told her, she isn't, she isn't overcome with what I would have been overcome with, what I'm sure many of you would have been overcome with, meaning she's not overcome by, by nerves or anxiety or, or worry. I mean, if you're, if you're a, a woman in here and you're told that, that you're going to be miraculously made pregnant, even though you're a virgin, what kind, of, what kind of heart would you feel? What would you feel inside of you? For me, it would be nerves, anxiety, and worry, fear, all those things. But rather, Mary's heart moves to do what? To magnify God. To magnify Him. She wants to lift him up as high as she can and exalt and praise him. That's what she does. As Sproul says of this passage, he says, It is not as if Mary is able to make God any greater than he already is, but her meaning is this. And this is the heart of Mary. My soul has been saturated by a sense of the divine and by his presence and by his mercy. And so from the deepest part of my being, I want to exalt him. That's the heart of Mary here. That's the heart of Mary. Friends, this is the heart of someone completely caught up in the joy of the Lord. Who is worshiping not simply with the mouth, but with the heart. But I also want you to see that verse 47, verse 47, is a natural consequence of verse 46. Let me say that one more time. Verse 47 is a consequence, is the natural result of verse 46. When we purposefully seek to magnify Jesus in our hearts by, by reading Scripture, by, by praying, by, by contemplating, thinking on His greatness and His wonderful works, the natural result of all of that is verse 47. It is our spirits rejoicing in God our Savior. And so friends, what, what, what I'm saying is that rejoicing is the result of magnifying. Do you, do you understand that? Rejoicing is the result of magnifying. And this is why singing hymns and, and worship songs can be so powerful if we are engaged with our hearts in it, right? As we have said many times before, the, the songs that we sing on a Sunday morning aren't just songs. They're not just songs. They're not just meant to be pretty for our human ears. But the songs that we sing on a Sunday morning are prayers set to music. And we aren't meant to just mindlessly sing them. But we are to pay attention 
Because when we're singing them and when we're doing so purposefully, we realize that in these songs, we're magnifying Jesus. That's what we're doing. That's what we did before the sermon started. We were magnifying Jesus. We are with intention singing to Him about His greatness, about His, about His care and His mercy. And friends, you'll find that when you sing these songs with intentionality, with, with the desire to magnify Jesus in your soul, then, oh, friends, you will find that your spirit is, is moved to actual rejoicing, to actual praise. And sometimes I think we want the blessing of the joy of the Lord, the, the joy that the Lord gives us, but we forget the means through which He pours that joy into our hearts is by casting our eyes onto Jesus our Savior. That's how we receive joy from God. Do you realize that? Because sometimes I think we forget it. We just want joy to appear in our hearts from God just, just in this vacuum. We just want to be joyful. But that joy comes from focusing our vision, focusing our minds and our hearts on Christ. That's where our joy is found. And so Mary really here is actually showing us how to worship. That's what she's doing. But friends, I also think that we must be careful here and not make an easy mistake and think that Sunday morning worship or, or singing these songs and hymns is the only place this, this can or should happen. In fact, I would be so bold to say that, that if that is the only place, or that is the only way, on, on Sunday mornings, or, or just singing, that's the only way that you magnify the Lord and rejoice in Him, then, then you actually have a big problem. Romans 12.1 makes that clear to us. Paul puts it this way. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So friends, what, he, what he's saying is that our whole lives, our whole lives, moment to moment, minute to minute, second by second, both on Sunday mornings and throughout the week, are meant to be a sacrifice to God by seeking to magnify the name of Jesus in all we do. In other words, as Paul says, every aspect of our lives should be an act of worship to God. Now I want you to imagine, just, and just for a moment, if we truly live that way, just think about it, just for, for one moment. If we truly lived that way, magnifying Him always and in every situation. Can you, can you picture what your life would be like if you did that? And if re rejoicing is truly a result of magnifying Jesus, then oh, what, what joy would fill our lives, believer, if we actually lived that way? Man, we would be a people known for nothing but rejoicing. And I can't tell you how badly I want to be known as, as not, not, a, not a smart man. I don't have to worry too much about that one. And I don't, I don't want to be known as a, as a successful man or, or a charismatic man or anything else. But friends, I desire to be known as a man of immense joy. That's what I want my reputation to be. I want to be known as a, as a man who has a word of praise 
always on my lips for my Savior. That's how I want you to know me. And friends, I was thinking earlier about the Advent candle that we were going to be lighting this morning. The candle that represents the peace that Jesus came to bring into the world. And I couldn't help but, but ponder how much peace we would have if our hearts were constantly seeking to magnify Jesus. Have you thought about that before? If we were constantly caught up in the joy-filled worship of Him in all we did, how much peace we would have in our hearts. Because, friends, a lack of peace is always, and I mean always, born from magnifying something else over Jesus. Do you realize that? What happens when we magnify our, our real and difficult and often painful problems over Jesus? What happens when we magnify other people, or ourselves, or our jobs, or even our families over Jesus? And what, what happens when our, when our, our lives are, are being lived as, as sacrifices to those things instead of Jesus? What happens? We don't have peace. It constantly seems out of reach for us. But again, look at Mary's situation. And despite all of the difficulties that are headed her way due to the miraculous nature of the virgin birth, whether it be the, the possibility of being shunned by her family or shamed by her community, even though she is uh, near the, the bottom of society, her heart is still yet rejoicing. It's rejoicing because she is magnifying Jesus. And friends, I believe that, that Mary did not experience a, a greater peace in her entire life than she probably did right there as she was singing those praises to God, other than the ones she's experiencing now. And friends, I believe that the heart that is most rejoicing in God is the heart that experiences the deepest amount of peace, no matter the circumstance. And this is the truth that is spoken of in Isaiah 26, 3, where it says, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. You will keep in perfect peace, perfect peace, those whose minds are steadfast. Because they trust in you. For those who in their minds and their hearts are steadfastly exalting Jesus, God will keep us in peace. Because when we magnify Jesus, what are we doing? We're, we're remembering all that He has done and promises to do. And we see this is true for Mary as we move into verses 48 and 49. As we, as we get into the substance of her exaltation of God. Take a look, starting again at verse 46 and then going through verse 49. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? Why? For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Will call her blessed. Mary. Blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. I think this is so wonderful for so many different reasons. Because here, Mary isn't just thinking generic thoughts about God or some higher power, but she is specific in her rejoicing. She's specific. Her rejoicing originates from the depths of her heart and her knowledge, her biblical knowledge of what God has done for her. 
And verse 48 really gives you the foundation to her praise. You see, God, God knew Mary. He knew Mary. God knew Mary more than Mary knew herself. There was absolutely nothing that was hidden from him about her. There's nothing that she ever did, nothing that she ever thought, no sin that she ever committed that was unknown to him. Not a single thing. And friends, the same is true for you and I. Because whether you are an unbeliever or a believer, there is nothing about us that is hidden from God. When God looks at you, it is not as if all He sees is your Facebook or Instagram page where, where all He can see is that what you put in front of Him, all the good stuff that you've done. No, God sees it all. God sees it all. He sees the good and He sees the bad. And friends, if you think the good outweighs the bad, Jeremiah 17.10 says this, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. God searches your heart. He knows your heart inside and out. He knows your thoughts inside and out. And friends, this is a difficult truth. It's a very difficult truth because there is almost always something about ourselves that we would prefer to stay hidden, right? Some aspect of our personality or some dark part of our heart or, or our past that we don't like. And we know that if maybe other people around us knew about it, they, they wouldn't like us. They wouldn't want us. They might reject us because of it. They might think differently. And so because of that, we, we, we try to hide it out of, out of shame and guilt and most often fear. Fear of being rejected. Fear of having friends and loved ones push you away, just like I said, or, or looking at you differently. And we often take this kind of baggage with us into a, a relationship with God. And we can be afraid to have Him gaze upon us for all of those same reasons. And we think that before we can approach the God of the universe, before we can have Him gaze upon us, we have to somehow cleanse ourselves of whatever it is that we feel like we have to hide. And so again, we either, we either try to hide from God, or, or, or we simply just ignore Him altogether. And we try to scrub ourselves clean. And again, this can be true for unbelievers who sometimes think that they have to be perfect or, again, made clean before they can go to Jesus, who is the only one who can make them clean. But this, again, can be true for believers who though we are saved, can still fall to sin and temptation from time to time. And, and when we do, we feel too ashamed, too, too guilt-ridden to approach the throne of, what? Grace? The throne of grace? And so, even though we're believers, we, we hide. We run. We try to cover up. But friends, this may come to a shock to you, but God is God. God is God. There is nowhere that we can go that He isn't. Meaning that, that try as we may, we, we, can't, we can't hide from Him. We can't cover things up from Him. God asked this rhetorical question in Jeremiah 23. He says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? But brothers and sisters, 
Again, I want you to remember the context of this line in Mary's song. Remember the context here. The Lord looked down on her humble estate, and this means her humble estate because of her sinfulness. This means her humble estate due to her status in society. And He looked down and saw Mary as she was. Warts and all. He knew Mary. But remember the context of this passage is one of of not shame. It's not one of hiding. It's not one of guilt. It's not one of wanting to run away from God. The context of this passage is, is what? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. And she tells us why. Because despite all of this, Despite the reality of her sinfulness and despite her her lowly societal standing, the Lord who is mighty, whose name is holy, in His great mercy and grace, has chosen to not push her away, but He's chosen to bless her, to give her the honor of being the earthly mother to the Messiah. God chose her to bear the very child who would save her from her sins. And she knew, even in the moment of singing this song, that from then on, all generations will call her blessed. Blessed. What an amazing prophecy this is from Mary here. A prophecy that came true, brothers and sisters, because we are talking about how blessed she was 2,000 years later. And friends, I pray that you see the hope for yourself here. Do you? Do you see the hope for yourself here? God knows you, friend. God knows you. He knows you. And instead of pushing you away because He knows you, He drew near to you. So near that He became like you in the incarnation, took on flesh, stepped down from His throne in heaven to be born in an animal feeding trough. All so that He could die for you, to redeem you. To save you from your own humble estate. How incredible is that? How wonderful is that? Despite knowing us down to our very sinful course, He chose to set His saving love upon us, believer. And though you may be forgotten in time, unlike Mary, from now on and for generations and generations to come, for the rest of eternity, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, if you've put your faith in Him, then forevermore you will be blessed. You'll be blessed. And for those who haven't experienced salvation through faith in Jesus alone, it's available to you. It's available to you. And this is essentially what Mary says in verse 50. It says, And His mercy is for those who fear Him. And this fear really means for those who honor Him and exalt Him and humbly recognize Him as the God and King that He truly is and submit themselves to Him. And this salvation wasn't just for the time of Mary, but it extends from generation to generation. And this is the mercy that's available to you right now through faith in Jesus alone. Mary then moves her worship from what God has done for her to the realm of God's providence, meaning His sovereign care over His creation in verses 
51 through 53. Now, as you're reading these next few verses, the question that we have here is in what sense is Mary speaking of these verses? Is Mary referring only to God's past work of redemption in Israel's history? Or is she saying that with the birth of Jesus, God is bringing down these earthly nations as He did in the past? Or, or maybe she has in her mind some future destruction of those who are against the Lord. In what way is she meaning these verses? As one commentator noted, certainly the Lord has worked in mighty ways in the past on His people's behalf, but given the context of this song from Mary, what is most likely in her mind is the present and the future. The present and the future. Not so much the past, but, but the present and the future. And the reason why most commentators think this is because the thrust of the entirety of chapter 1 is Mary, Elizabeth, and Zechariah looking forward to the coming fulfillment to all of God's promises. And they're rejoicing that God is beginning to fulfill these promises and inaugurate His kingdom in the birth of these two boys, especially Jesus. And so that is the lens through which we are to understand what Mary is saying in these, these next several verses. And I hope what I'm saying becomes more clear as we look at verses 51 and 52 to start with, which says, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So Mary begins these verses with an allusion to Psalm 89, verse 10. Psalm 89, verse 10. A verse which speaks of God's sovereign deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And the psalmist says this, You have crushed Rahab, which is a term for Egypt. You have crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. So the point that Mary is making is, is actually a, a pretty potent one. Because the earth, as, as I'm sure all of us are well aware, is full of the arrogant and proud. And more often than not, None more so than those who sit on thrones of political or military or financial power. And Mary is saying to God, I remember what you did in Egypt. God, I remember what you did in Egypt. I remember you rescuing your people from Egypt and destroying their military in the waters of the Red Sea, bringing the entire nation to its knees, even the Pharaoh, through the plagues. All of that was as easy for you as beating up a dead body. We often have the mistaken belief that the world leaders currently right now are the ones who are in control of the fate of the world. Right? It's our natural inclination. That we as Christians have a reason to be afraid of what presidents or kings or governments or governmental bodies might do. But Mary is actually saying the exact opposite. She's saying the exact opposite. She is reminding us that the true ruler who is governing the world is not all of these people in political power or, or who have this military strength or, or pull the levers of the world's financial institutions or whatever. But who is it? It's God. It's God Himself. And with the power of His strong arm, He has, does, and will scatter those who are prideful in the thoughts of their hearts, who believe they hold the world in their hands. And as verse 52 says, He will bring them down from their thrones. 
whether in this life or in the one to come. And upon his second advent, there won't be a nation left not bowing their knee to the one and only true king. And this is similar to what Hannah says in her song in 1 Samuel 2, 3. Where she says, talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. And so those who have prideful hearts, who think themselves above or, or without need of God, will all one day be pulled from their thrones before the judgment seat of God. And Mary sees that in the birth of Jesus, that, that God is now acting to bring this, this future promise about. But not just the throwing down of earthly kingdoms, but also the deliverance of His people, right? Because at the same time that God is scattering the proud and bringing down the mighty, He's also doing what? The last half of verse 52. What does it say? He's exalting those of humble estate. He's exalting those of humble estate. In the kingdom of God, which is the only kingdom that will last into eternity, the only kingdom whose king sits on the throne forever. It is the humble who are, as Hannah says in her song, are given the seats of honor. Those who recognize their unworthiness for the salvation that is freely given to them are those who are lifted up, not torn down or battered or mistreated, but lifted up by the strong arm of God. But I do want to say there is a false gospel. There's a false gospel, sometimes called the social gospel, that says that Christ came to bring about social, social revolution. And He did. He did come to bring about social revolution, but only if defined properly. But these false teachers will wrongly teach that the social revolution that Jesus came to bring is rooted in those who are in low social standing now rising up to take political or social power in this life. That what Jesus wants now are for the oppressed and the poor to rise up against the wealthy and powerful and take their rightful place on, on earthly thrones. But friends, that is not the social revolution Jesus came to bring. Remember, remember the circumstances of His birth, friends. Remember the circumstances of His life. Jesus was born, lived, and died in squalor and shame. Do you remember that? And friends, He says that if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, then you should expect the same. You should expect the same. The same suffering Jesus experienced, he tells us, is meant to be a shared experience amongst the saints, which is you and I. That's Romans 8.17, that's 2 Timothy 3.12, that's Mark 10.30, that's 1 Peter 4.12-13, and the list goes on. In this life, he doesn't say that our pursuit should be political power or anything of the like. Not to say that, that running for office is inherently sinful. But our primary pursuit in this life is to be about the business of our king. It's to be about the business of our king. And what, friends, is the business of our king? It's spreading the good news and seeing souls saved. That is our purpose in this life. 
It is to become more and more like Jesus and do the gospel work He has put us here to do. And friends, that comes with a cost that often looks like oppression. And it often looks like suffering and losing jobs and becoming an object of mockery. At the same time, friends, we have the privilege of joining Mary in this song of hers because in Jesus' kingdom that He is bringing to earth when He comes again, all of the nations of earth will crumble. All of them. All the proud will scatter. But you and I, believer, as Hannah says in her song, will be raised from the dust and ash heap and sat among our fellow saints in seats of honor. That is why despite all, all of the mockery, all the, all the oppression that we experience now as believers, that's why losing our jobs or being called to a mission field where we may lose our lives, that's why all of that is worth it. Not because we're, we're promised these, these seats of power in, in this life, in this temporary life that's here and gone in a second. But because the thrones that we're going to be placed on in heaven are thrones that last forever. These seats of honor that we are promised by Jesus are seats of honor that last forever. Not just a a mere span of, of human life. That is the social revolution Jesus came to bring. And it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, if you're black, white, Asian, Middle Eastern. It doesn't matter if you're poor or rich, a senator or a coal miner. For those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus, as Galatians 3.28 says, we are all one in Christ. And we will be exalted and lifted high by the hand of Jesus Himself. And the least of us, the least of us, Not the most prominent or the most popular, but the least of us, the most dependent and the most desperate for Jesus will be the first in His kingdom. And Mary continues this flow of thought in verse 54. And she says, He has filled the hungry with good things. He has filled the hungry with good things. And this points us directly to what Jesus will eventually say in John 6, 35, where He says, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. And friends, what He is saying here is that Jesus satisfies us completely. He satisfies us completely. In Him, the desperate hunger for spiritual nourishment is absolutely satisfied. And the stream of living water that flows from Him quenches our ever-thirsty hearts. Friends, how amazing is it that you can die destitute? You can die of physical starvation, but if you die in Christ, your eternity is, is far more grand than the greatest and most prosperous king or queen who has ever lived and died without Christ. How amazing is that? Such is the social upheaval of God's kingdom. It is far better to be last in His kingdom than first in the kingdom of man. And so He has filled the hungry with good gospel things, and the rich He has sent away. Now friends, this is not an indictment on all those who are rich, but rather those who are self-satisfied in their wealth who believe that they do not need to depend on God because of their material riches. Those are the ones who, like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, are sent away empty. 
empty. And they have the world, but Scripture says that they go away empty. And not just empty in the sense of their riches, but empty of the bread of life. They're sent away without the bread of life that fills the humble. And they're empty of the water of life that is for those who thirst for redemption. Friends, there is nothing worse in all eternity than to be sent away from Christ empty. Mary then finishes her song beautifully in verses 54 through 55. She says, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring. Now one theologian sums up this passage well by saying, Remember David's cry in Psalm 103, 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Our tendency as Christians is to be as strong in faith as the recollection of our latest blessing. Is that it home for you? Steps on my toes. But we forget all the blessings that God has poured out on us in our lives. That's our nature. We forget. We forget. This is one of the ways that we differ so profoundly from God. Friends, He does not know how to forget. Once God makes a promise, it is a sure promises. His promises can never be broken or forgotten. And the national faith of Israel and the spiritual vitality of the people were weak, were weak at the time of Jesus' coming. And people such as Elizabeth and Zechariah and Joseph and Mary, who kept the faith that was handed down to them through ages, they, they felt all alone. They felt all alone. And if, you, if you're a believer in this room, have you ever felt all alone here in New England? That's just a glimpse, a tiny glimpse of what, what Elizabeth and Zechariah and Joseph and Mary probably felt. They wondered, where's God? And then in the Magnificat, Mary said, oh, oh yes. He remembers the covenant He made with Abraham and with our fathers forever. He remembers and that's, that's the beauty of our God. Because even when we feel alone, even when we feel like we are at an all-time low in our lives, even when we feel like there's wolves constantly surrounding us, man, the birth of Jesus is the evidence that God does not forget His promises that He has made to us. The offspring of Abraham through faith. The covenant promises that were made in the Old Testament, Mary is proclaiming, are fulfilled in Jesus. The Messiah has come. He who will forgive and cleanse us of our sins and deliver His people from the chains of the enemy and from the wrath of God has come. And the promises given to us in the new covenant established in the blood of Jesus, promises that, that the wicked will be defeated, that the righteous in Christ will triumph, and that the Lord's kingdom will come in fullness in Jesus' second advent. These promises will never be forgotten by our covenant-remembering Savior. Praise God for that. So friends, let us keep on with Mary. Let us not just worship Him with our lips. Let us worship Him with everything we've got, and not just this morning. But even as we leave these doors and go on to our, our difficult lives this week, man, let us in everything praise God and magnify Jesus in our hearts. Because that's the only way that we're going to be filled with His peace. That's the only way that we're going to be known as a people of joy. 
of joy. So let's keep magnifying Him and rejoicing. Please pray with me. Lord, I thank You that You are a God that remembers Your promises. Lord, that is the foundation of of the peace and the joy that we can have, Lord, that that we can know. Lord, and we we can ponder and contemplate the fact that our Savior doesn't just make empty promises. But Lord, the the promises that you made us will be kept. What a wonderful thing that we have to rejoice about. God, that that you have saved us. Lord, through faith in your Son, you have saved us. And there is a great day coming back where you will usher in your kingdom and all of the pains and trials and sufferings that we experience now are, are going to be gone. And the only thing left, the only thing left, God, is going to be joy and peace. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that as we go about our lives, that we dedicate our lives to you and magnifying your name so that we can just get a taste, just a glimpse of the joy and peace that's going to be waiting for us, that is waiting for us in heaven and in the kingdom that is coming. Lord, we love you. And I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.